Welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. We're going to have a fun conversation, a difficult one, on a new chapter that I started with my students and just recently finished on why God allows evil. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Specifically looking at the question of what is evil and then responding to the probability problem of evil, that it's not very likely that God exists given all the evil, pain, and suffering in the world. Now, before we do, I want to share a little bit of a devotion, actually, I was having. Uh, My wife and I are reading through the book of Acts. Um, We've kind of taken advice from people like Jay Warner Wallace and Greg Kokel and, you know, talking about reading the Bible through. And and I've tried to do the reading plans, right, where you have to read a certain number of passages every day to read the Bible in a year. And I've done those from time to time. Uh, But this one I want to take a little bit slower. And so I actually got the, uh, this from Greg Kokel, but I, I printed out a sheet with, with all the chapters, uh, a little box for each chapter of Scripture, and as we read it, we just go through and check the box, and we're taking as much time as we need. Some mornings we read more, some mornings we read less, and as we just read, we check off the box, and that way we know that we read through the whole Bible before we kind of go back and start repeating stuff. And again, this kind of helps at getting uh, and making sure that you are reading all of Scripture, the whole Bible, and not just focusing on the parts that maybe you like a little bit more. So right now, we're currently reading through the book of Acts. And as we're reading through, man, things just stand out to me as I as I have, you know, these conversations and, and recording this podcast. And so when I see things in Scripture, just it, I can't help but have it stand out. And one thing I saw was in Acts chapter 4. And one question that I often get is, why doesn't God just reveal himself to everybody? And surely that they'll believe. And I've pointed to examples like Lazarus, where Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, and the people did not become convinced that God can raise people from the dead or that Jesus is God, but instead they tried to destroy the evidence, right? There's examples, right, where where Jesus says, you know, your sins are forgiven and and, and raises up the, the crippled man right in front of the people, and they plotted to kill him. And so we see example after example of this. And there was another example that I read in Acts 4 that I thought was so interesting. I'm going to share it and then I have a few comments about it. So from Acts chapter 4, and it's in verse 16. And this is Peter and John uh, before the council. And the council members speak and they say, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. And again, I probably read this verse so many times, but it just stands out to me of how blatantly obvious that they are, right? Where they say, it is, we cannot deny that a sign has been done. So rather than going, okay, an incredible sign has been done, let's change our mind, let's go along with this, because obviously something incredible here is happening, they want to continue doing the things that they've done, and then threaten them, saying, don't go out and talk about it anymore. And I think what this goes to show is, one, that people don't just get converted because something amazing has happened. It's not just because of evidence that people come to faith. Right, An apologetic argument is not going to convince some people. Evidence doesn't convince people unless the Holy Spirit is at work. Right, I think it's often a mistake when people say no arguments ever convince anyone. And that's false because there's a lot of people that have been convinced by arguments. 
But to say that every argument convinced, all you have to do is give them apologetics, that's also false. Right? We have to have the work of the Holy Spirit transforming and regenerating the hearts and minds of the person so that they can see the truth. But notice this, in, in, this doesn't change Paul's approach, right? Where you read just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 9, verse 22, it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Right? So I think here, Paul or Saul uh, obviously doesn't change his approach. He, he understands how to talk to certain groups of people. And just because some people were given evidence and reject it, it doesn't then make him stop giving evidence, right? We have to understand the people that we're talking to and approach them in that way. And so I thought, as I read this, I think, that, man, this is just so important as we try to understand what is the role of apologetics? What is the role of giving arguments and evidence? Uh, do they always convert? Do they never convert? No, well, it's somewhere in between. And hopefully we have a clear understanding of this, whether you're a Christian apologist, which I'm assuming you are interested in it if you're listening to this, but also as you're talking to people that maybe are not so fond of apologetics, is, is that, look, Paul and Saul, the, the disciples, Jesus himself, continued to give evidence. And they talked about the reasons for why they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus did miracles to prove that he was the Son of God. And this happened over and over. But at the same time, we see many examples where people simply just rejected it. Their hearts were closed. Uh, they were not open to understanding or hearing. And even if they saw something so blatant that they could not deny it, they still didn't want it to spread. So hopefully, maybe you can take that as an encouragement uh, to continue to get out there, continue to talk to people and recognize it's not your job to convince them. Right? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's our job to give them the information. It's our job to share the gospel with them. It's our job to help them see Jesus clearly. And if they reject it, that is on them. And we pray and trust that the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts and in their minds. So looking forward to this next week, there are some awesome opportunities for you all to get involved. First of all, there are three interviews coming up. On April 19th, on Friday morning, April 19th, I will be interviewing Dr. John Marriott on his new book, A Recipe for Disaster. And in this book, he he studied a deconversion of people leaving the faith, and he gives uh, some practical steps for why individuals lose their faith, and then how we can then build a faith that endures. And so we're going to be talking to him, or I'm going to be talking to him, and, and discussing why people are losing the faith and how can we build a lasting faith. Then on April 22nd, on Monday, I'll be talking with Dr. Sean McDowell about his new book, So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. Now, Sean co-wrote this with Jay Warner Wallace, and so actually on the 22nd, I'm going to be talking to Sean first, getting his understanding of how we can prepare Christians for this challenging world. And then on April 23rd, which actually is my birthday, I will be talking with Jay Warner Wallace and getting his perspective on the book that he co-wrote with Sean. So these are going to be three interviews, all discussing why students Students are leaving the faith. How can we prepare a faith and instill a faith that endures and then prepare them for the challenges that they are going to face in our culture? So these are three great opportunities and ways for you to get connected in what is happening here with Coffee House Questions. So as always, go to uh, facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions. You can send in your questions there. You can follow me at ryanpolly3 on Instagram or Twitter and send in your questions there. You can text them in at 714 
989-6927 or email them through contact at coffeehousequestions.com. So hopefully uh, you can send in those questions of how to train and prepare students uh, for the world that we live in and do that well for those three interviews with John Marriott, Sean McDowell, and Jay Werner Wallace over the next week. Now, along with those three interviews, I'm also speaking six times from April 22nd to April 24th. On the night of April 22nd, I'm Skyping into a, a Bible study uh, that's actually meeting out near Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm going to be doing an atheist role play, trying to challenge the adults of this Bible study uh, in, in understanding the faith and, and actually use this as, they want to use this as a, a way to kind of kick off a new group of preparing and encouraging the adults in this group to go out into uh, their community, and they're going to be inviting people from their neighborhood, their non-believing friends in, to kind of start an apologetic uh resource uh, or an apologetic discussion where they're going to be answering questions each week that they have as well as that their non-believing friends have. So I'm excited to be doing that. Then on uh, the 22nd, I wake up and I'm going to be doing two more atheist role plays at a high school here in Southern California, uh, two different Bible classes there. And then back again at the same high school doing three more Bible classes on April 23rd. And so uh, my spring break starts on Friday the 19th. And uh, well, I filled it up with about 10 different events. And so, uh, but good news, I'm going to take a little break. My parents are coming to town on the 24th. So we have that kind of coming up. But um, I just want to let you guys know about these awesome opportunities. And also, my summer is filling up, and I'm uh, planning to travel to quite a few different summer camps and uh, on Maven trips that I'm going to be doing. And again, check out the open enrollment Maven trip to Utah. You can uh, email me and contact me uh, and hear more information about that. I'll be taking that team out to Utah. But again, opportunities for you to have me out to your church, your youth group. I can Skype in, or you can fly me in, or I'll drive over if you're close by. And I would love to help uh, train your group in helping uh, answer questions and understand the evidence for the truth of Christianity and how to live in the world that we live in. One of the most recent events that I did, it was so much fun. I went down and, and wrote a new talk on entertainment culture. I was able to go down to the Chinese Bible Church of San Diego and had that fun event that I got told you guys about. It was really a cool success. A lot of fun as, as three different speakers I talked on science, culture, myself, and then faith and reason. And then we had a panel Q&A and it was a lot of fun. So cool things have been happening. I'm really excited and it's going to be a busy summer as things are booking up and filling up quick. So contact me if you want to have me out or uh, if I can help you and your group at all. So recently in my high school class, we, we discussed the problem of evil. And this is actually something I realized I have not talked a whole lot about on the show. Why does God allow evil? And, and I want to kind of give you two things really to think about in responding to this question that is probably one of the most common questions and objections that I get. Now, to start, I always have to, to remind people and say, look, if someone comes up to you and says, why does God allow pain and suffering? Why does God allow evil? You have to ask a question first. The first question you have to ask is, why are you asking this question? Of all the questions you could ask God, why this one? And I learned this from Sean McDowell. And the point here is, is that you want to understand which problem of evil the person is asking about. If they have had a loved one pass away, if they've had a tragic event in their life and they're saying, why would God allow this to happen? Your rational justification and free will defense for why God will allow evil is not going to be appropriate. If this person is hurting and they're in pain, you need to come alongside them and mourn with them and, and comfort them and love them. And so if they say, if you ask, why are you asking this question? They say, well, someone just passed away in my family. Your response needs to be very different. 
Now, if they, again, they say, you know, I was watching Batman versus Superman in that movie, Lex Luthor uh, says, you know, if God is all good, why would he allow evil? And if he's all powerful, he could stop all evil. But, you know, evil still exists. So, you know, there must not be a God. And I'm just curious, how would you respond? Well, now you have an intellectual uh, response that you can give. But again, think about think about responding to the intellectual response from the emotional side. And someone goes, well, I was watching this movie. I'm just curious. And you're like, oh, let me, I'm sorry. Let me, let me give you a hug. They're going to be like, what are you doing? Right. Either way, if we respond from the wrong camp, if we respond to the wrong problem, it's either going to be really awkward or it's going to be very destructive. And so we have to start with that question. Now, when discussing the intellectual problem of evil, one of the activities that I kind of went over with my students and really trying to help them understand is we first have to define what evil is. But if people are going to be complaining about evil and why is there so much evil in the world? Well, a good question might be, well, what is evil? And I want you maybe to think about that for a second. You, listeners to this podcast, to this radio show, what is evil? How would you answer this question? Would you give examples? Well, murder is evil. Well, no, that's an example of evil. Why do we call murder evil? What is evil? Well, evil is something that hurts someone. Well, why do you call hurting someone evil? What is evil? How would you define it? This becomes a little bit more of a difficult question when we think about it that way. And this kind of gets into the moral argument a little bit from this perspective. But here's an important question, is if they're going to be complaining about all the evil in the world, then we better define what evil actually is. So the definition that I use and teach my students is this, evil is the absence of good. Evil is the privation of good. Evil is where good should be and, it's, and the goodness is being blocked or corrupted. Right, So a good body doesn't have sickness, right? When you start to get sickness, that is evil, that is bad. As you remove the sickness, your body heals and gets better, right? Evil is like rust in a car. You have a car full of rust, it's a bad car. Take all the rust out of the car, you have a better car. I also give the example in my talk on why God allows evil. If uh, It's like a donut with a donut hole, right? The donut hole is not a thing in itself that exists, but the donut hole is the absence of donut. You fill in the hole, you have more donut, you have better donut, right? And so in that same way, we have to understand, well, what is evil? But if evil is the absence of good, well, now how do we define good? And good is that which matches or aligns with God's original design. And here is where we can give some illustrations that I think are so important. So with my students, I asked them a few questions. I held up my coffee cup and I said, look, here's how we understand what are good and bad uses of something is we understand the design and purpose of the thing. So how is my coffee cup designed? Well, it has a handle and it's pretty thick uh, so it can't transfer heat very well. Okay, so what is the purpose of my coffee mug? Well, the purpose is to put hot water in it. Okay, now based on now that you know the design and the purpose, what it would be a good use of this mug? Well, to put coffee in it. What would be a bad use? To use it as a hammer, right? That would destroy it. It's not what it was made for. Well, here I have a phone in my hand. How was it designed? Well, it has a screen, it has buttons, it has a microphone, it has a speaker. Okay, uh, wh what is the purpose of a phone? Well, the phone is to you know communicate, it's to contact, it's to make phone calls, it's to check things. Okay, so what would be a good use of the phone? Well, to do the things it was designed to do. What would be a bad use of the phone? To use it as a baseball or to use it just as a paperweight, right? These would be bad uses. It would destroy the phone. And we could continue going over 
uh, example after example, and I went over many examples. I used a dry erase marker. I used the desks that they were sitting in. And we understand that a bad use of something is using it in a way that it was not designed to use. That would be wrong. And a good use is using it in the way it was designed to be used. Now, here's where we make the switch. When it comes to human beings, were we designed and do we have a purpose? And here's where we have the famous Richard Dawkins quote that many people uh, use. Here, Richard Dawkins says, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Right? He, earlier, before this, he says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. This comes up, and this brings up a very important question. Now, not every atheist is going to agree with Richard Dawkins, but I think he has an interesting point. If you don't have any design, if you don't have a designer of our universe, and therefore our universe is not created for a purpose, then how do you know what a good or bad use of the universe or the things in the universe is? It is only within a Christian worldview and other divine worldviews, I think, that where you have actually purpose, that you can say, look... Human beings were created to be free. And therefore, if you give them freedom, that is good. And if you enslave them, that is evil. Human beings were created to live. Therefore, if you allow them to live and help them prosper, that is good. And if you kill them, that is evil. And you can keep going down the list. But here's the whole point. If you do not have God in our world, then what are you calling evil? Evil is just the things you don't like? I would not call, you know, uh, uh, um, chocolate evil. If I did, that's ridiculous. Well, I don't like chocolate. So therefore, it's evil. Well, no, other people do like it. And I could never say, you can't eat chocolate. You can't do these things. We can't relativize this. If, if, you, if you start to relativize everything, where everything just becomes a matter of preference or opinion, then, then we have issues. We can't have these conversations. Or at least <laughs> the opinions now just don't matter. You just have a conflict of opinion. And whoever wins, wins. And then we've talked about that on the show is then what do you do with things where things like slavery won? Was it morally good that that was voted in? But here's where this comes down is, is what is evil? What is it that we're actually complaining about? In order to complain about evil, we have to assume that there's an objective design and purpose for humans or for the life that we live, that it is bad when these things happen. I was not made to suffer. Well, how do you know that? What is the purpose of life? Is the purpose of life not to suffer? Is the purpose of life these things? Were we designed in this way? Or is it just that we simply don't like it? I think this is a very valuable thing uh, to, to start the conversation with when we ask simply, well, what do you mean by evil? Because within a Christian worldview, I think that we can define it well, that evil is the absence of good, and good is that which aligns with God's original design. And that makes sense, even from without a Christian worldview, that makes sense of everything we see around us. I just went on a bicycle ride today. Here's how my bike is designed with two wheels and a seat. What is the purpose of it? To ride it. What is a good use? Riding it. What is a bad use? Well, anything else, right? We understand this. You don't have to be a Christian to see it. And so hopefully, I think oftentimes we can use this kind of common sense, here's what we see, how things work, and then apply that to our life. And I think that's what Dawkins has done here. It says, look, there's no designer because there's no God. 
Therefore, there's no purpose that you you live. You just some people get lucky and some people don't. There's no rhyme or reason behind it. The world, if all we have is genetic uh, uh, genetic mutations acted upon by natural selection, and therefore there's no good or bad. It's just blind, pitiless indifference. And then how can you really complain about evil? Now the person might be complaining of the Christian view of evil. And that's how I want to kind of finish off our last bit of time. They might say, well, yeah, I agree that there's no evil, but the Christian believes in a God who designed and gave purpose, but still allows these bad things to happen. What do you do then? Well, there's a couple ways that I would think about this. First of all, how do you know that God doesn't have a reason for allowing these things? Again, let's use a common modern day uh, easy example that we all have. When you take a child to go get an injection. That is going to cause pain and suffering on that child. Does that mean that the parent is going to stop? The moment the child says, this hurts, is the parent going to go, oh, that hurts? Okay, I won't do this to you. No, in fact, some parents will hold the child down so that the doctor or nurse can give the injection. Why? Because the parent knows better. The parent knows that this is actually for the greater good of their child. Or the same thing when you go to the dentist. Or the same thing in a lot of ways. You inflict pain and suffering. A surgery. I had myself cut open. And then I had a time of recovery. Why did I go through that pain? Well, because it was removing something for a good reason. And so we understand this idea. And so how could we possibly say that God doesn't have a, a better reason, a purpose for the evil, for the pain, for the suffering that he allows? Now, I'm going to come back to this point because I think that there's something that wraps this up very well here in a minute. The second thing to think about is that uh, we can't just single out the problem of evil. What we often hear is, well, there's evil, therefore God must not exist, as if that is the only evidence, the only thing that we see in our world in which to make this decision. Well, yeah, if you only have one thing pointing to this thing, to this argument, well, yeah, it does seem pretty convincing, right? In the same way, if you have a criminal trial and you only have one eyewitness and that one eyewitness says he did not commit the murder, yeah, it sure seems like he's innocent. But, well, are you, what about the other witnesses? Oh, well, but they're going to say something different. Well, okay, now let's, let's ask them, what are they going to say? Well, now we got 10 witnesses that all say that he did commit the murder and one that says he didn't. Well, now the story changed changes. Now it becomes a little bit more probable that this person actually is guilty. And so with the problem of evil, we can't allow in our conversations the person to single out only the problem of evil and say, look, therefore God doesn't exist. What about all the other arguments for God's existence? What about the cosmological argument, the fine-tuning argument, the consistent laws of nature, the laws of logic and mathematics and explanation for those, information and intentionality that we see, the origin of life, the origin of the mind and human consciousness that can't be explained within a materialistic world, uh, free will, how we understand free will, objective morality, beauty, pleasure, Old Testament prophecies, the life and the resurrection of Jesus, right? If all of these are arguments for the existence of God, pointing to, yes, God does exist, and only evil points to no well, now we have a different story. We have to evaluate this with in a new light. But when you go back to what I started this conversation with, when you start to have to define evil, well, I think evil can only be possible if God exists. And so this is not an argument against his existence, but it's an argument for him. And then we understand why he would allow these things to take place. 
So that's kind of the second thing. The first one is we we don't have all knowledge. We can't know in every single situation why God would allow this thing to happen. And we understand in our human lives that God or that that we do allow for pain and suffering because we understand there's a better or greater good. Second thing is we can't allow the person to just single out one thing, the problem of evil, and then say God doesn't exist and ignore all the evidence for God's existence. The second thing is that, or the third thing is this is that there are understandings, there are ideas, there are teachings within Christianity that help us understand why God would allow this evil. First one is that we should expect evil, we're fallen, right? It's humans that do evil, and this is kind of the free will defense of the God. To God, free will is so valuable that he gives it to us, but you can't give someone freedom, free will, and allow them to use, and not allow them to use it wrongly. And so we, as humans, are the ones that create most of the evil in the world. It is our fault. With the murder and everything that takes place, it's, it's on us. It's our responsibility to fix it. Oftentimes, as a teacher, you know, I write up a student, I get them in trouble, and they get detention. They go, ah, Mr. Polly, you gave me detention. Well, in a sense, I kind of did, but you also earned it, right? You deserve it. You knew very clearly if you did this thing, then you would get detention and you chose to do it. I just happened to be the one that caught you. But we love blaming the person who gets us in trouble as if it is all their fault. And I think we do the same with God is that we blame God and say, ah, oh, it's God's fault that there's all this evil. Well, no, you're the one who did it. You knew that if you did this action, then this result would take place. But here's that what makes so much more sense or, 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 or helps me see this objection so much more clearly when we think about this. The purpose of life is to know God. The purpose of life is not happiness. And God's purpose doesn't only stick to this life. I'm sure you can imagine and think back to times, and I definitely can very recently, some days that were really, really hard days. And if the purpose of my life is to be happy, then that day was worthless. It was pointless. It was nonsense. It was a waste. But if the purpose of my life is to advance in holiness, to become more like Jesus, then I can already look back at that day and go, wow, I learned how to be more loving. I learned how to be more forgiving. I saw the faults of my human broken nature very clearly that day, and things need to get better. And we understand this. And so when we change again our perspective and say the purpose of life is not to be happy, the purpose of life is to know God. And God may allow suffering in our lives for the purpose of of growing our character and our knowledge of him. And he isn't just worried about this life. That when you take eternity into perspective, you could have the worst 40 years of suffering here in this life imaginable, but if you spend an eternity in heaven with God, 40 years of suffering divided by an eternity of joy, it's effectively 0%. And that's not to, to minimize the suffering that we go through because it is terrible and it's painful, but it changes our perspective. In the same way, if we have 40 good years on life, but we don't know Christ and we are sent to eternal separation from him, 40 good years divided by an, an infinite of suffering is going to be effectively 100% of your life you're suffering. And this changes everything. And so I think from the Christian, we can understand, we can define evil, and then we can fight it. We can get out and say, look, we know what evil is because we can define it. We can see it clearly. Now let's stop it. Let's make this world better as we fight to know God, help people know him, and become more like him. So there are my thoughts 
on a week of teaching the problem of evil to my students. Well, I hope that was an encouragement to you. I also hope the kids were not too loud in the background. I think I'd have to change my recording time now that summer is approaching and my apartment is right near the pool, but tried to eliminate some of that noise. But I hope, again, as you have conversations and are challenged on this problem, the problem of evil and why God would allow evil, that this is an encouragement and it can help you out in that. And if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please go over to your podcasting listening app, iTunes, whatever it is, and leave a rating. If you want to write a review, you can do that, but just hit those stars. And again, uh, thank you to those who have been doing that. Uh, More ratings have come in, and really, I truly appreciate it, as that helps more people understand and just see it and go, ooh, that looks good. Maybe I'll check that out. And they can be encouraged, too, as they see the evidence for Christianity and the defense of the reliability of the Christian worldview. I hope that you would send in those questions. If you don't have have any questions on how to prepare students and you have students of your own, why don't you ask your student and say, hey, what questions, what challenges are you facing in the world today? Send that in to me and I would love to get uh, Dr. John Marriott, Dr. Sean McDowell, and Jay Warner Wallace's opinions on your questions. And so send those in and I'd love to ask them and get your interaction with the guests that I have coming on as well. Well, I pray that as you go in the rest of your day, that you would have an understanding of what is the purpose of life, of who God has created us to be, of how he has created us to live and act. And that would challenge you and cause you to go out and to love people well and to pursue Christ more. So I pray that you have a good rest of your day, a blessed weekend, and you love God. And also, as always, sip coffee and think deeply. This is Coffee House Questions with Ryan Pauly. Won't hesitate to follow your love will guide me.